0: Welcome to episode 196 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. And this episode is brought to you by Tama Drums. If you haven't seen the release yet, Tama just put out a new pedal. They're calling it the Dyna Sync. This is a direct drive style pedal, which means there's not a chain or a strap connecting the footboard to the cam, but rather metal, a solid piece of metal that keeps. So it gets rid of any kind of lag, any kind of give, makes it for a very clean, precise, fast performance um Tama being well known for their hardware they they've focused in on the three very uh, important components for a pedal so the direct drive linkage is state-of-the-art the drive cam itself has some cool features where you can move it forward and backward to get a different feel there's um the, the footboard connection angle can actually be adjusted very easily with the drum key and all the the different angles are marked with indicators so you can remember where you had it before or after you changed it so it's a really nice high-end pedal it's got a slick uh, footboard so there's you know if you like to slide your foot on the footboard it's designed for that it's a really high quality pedal Um, If you haven't tried a direct drive pedal, um, you should give it a shot. I would describe them as being transparent. You just don't really notice that the pedal is there, which is, for me, that's the key with gear. I don't want to know that the gear is there. I just want it to do what it needs to do. And so far, this DynaSync Tama pedal is doing just that. Uh, Okay, so our intro groove is, sorry if I mispronounce your name, Suyash Med. He is playing a Pearl Session Studio Birch. Uh, bass drum and toms he has a pearl masterworks uh free-floating maple snare he's got a k constantinople zildjian ride um, he's got some zildjian planet z hi-hats he's using the gen x and a former for an affected sound so cool beats let's check it out this is suyash and then uh yeah let's get the show rolling
1: Oh my goodness. Episode oh, 100 and a lot. How are you?
0: 196. That's what hey, I... we've yep. got a month to figure out what we're going to do for episode 200. Any, any And we're faults? getting closer every time.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Yes. I'm sure I'll have a camp going on during that time. Get your ass out here, man. Come to yeah, California.
0: I should. I need to get out. I mean, nah. I don't have any breaks,
1: man. Modern drummer executives. If you <laughs> listen to our podcast... <laughs> Which I highly doubt you do, but if you do, please send Dawson out here. Our campers would love to meet him. You can do a clinic. We give you like fifty bucks. <laughs> Cover your airfare. Uh, We're good start to go now. See you. See you in a yes. couple weeks. <laughs> oh my goodness! But that would that would be fun. I'd love to have you here someday for a camp. I'd love to teach a camp with you. Um, yeah, that'd be fun. I think fun. that'd be a lot of fun. Okay, quick. I'm going to ask your outside opinion, okay. on something before we dig into me being gone and all that other stuff. I have a friend who lives in the UK. We recently did a little Instagram video together just to cheer people up and let them know that there's room for everybody. Mm -hmm. Him and I do not share one single endorsement. Mm -hmm. Nothing sticks, heads, drums, cymbals, all that. Uh, I would say the only thing we have in common on gear is that we both play the same practice pad. That's probably it. And neither of us are endorsed by that practice pad. We just happen to play that pad. Okay. What do you think the likelihood is that we can get support from our companies if him and I go out on a clinic tour together, whether it be in the US or the UK? And the whole point of the clinic tour is that we don't play any of the same companies. Like it's like a play what you dig clinic tour. And the point is, we don't share a single endorsement. We still, and we love our gear. Like I feel like that would be positive for the industry, but I don't know if our separate companies would be on board with it, right? No, I mean
0: just being on the, on the the inside of doing festivals with multiple sponsors i mean once you start putting competing banners on on stage it it you know it can get a little squirrely yeah so For that's someone, why i'm who, thinking who's going to be the highest banner who's going to be the biggest banner who, i mean all that Man. stuff comes into play and i love that kind of stuff i love confrontation <laughs> not like
1: fighting but just i love you know, just sticking it to the man. I, I mean, dig that
0: stuff, and I can tell you from personal experience over the past year, trying to do more independent clinics with no sponsorship, it mm-hmm. it doesn't really work. Even it's just a no, matter no. Of, I the mean, the system just isn't set up for that,
1: right? I mean, even financially, we wouldn't be able to do it unless we had our endorsements backing. But it, it it's almost to the endorsements, like. Well, you think you're pretty awesome, right? What does it matter if there's a Tama kit right next to me or a Pearl kit or Zildjian cymbals? And then it's like, put up or shut up. Like, I'm proud of my gear. I'll stack it up next to anything because I love it. And the whole point of the tour, obviously it would just be a clinic tour if you want to come out and see two drummers. That's great. But the real point is like, Look, we don't want to sell you on anything. If just hit things in a shop and pick out your favorite, and if, especially if you don't have endorsements or any serious brand loyalty, to be able to be like, I dig those hi hats from that ba- brand, and I dig that ride from a different brand. Ugh. Oh,
0: yeah, that's man. why you'll
1: never be CEO of a of a major business. <laughs> <laughs> That's why that's why like when people pitch me that kind of stuff, like, okay, listen, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna put this influx of 250K and then we're gonna get you a board of directors, and then I just projectile vomit on their face. And I'm like, I don't that is so not what I want. I wanna run a business based off of good vibes and feeling, which I understand is anti-business. So anyways, I brought back some olive oil from Greece. Hey, so how was the dude ranch? Was there was it a full on like like cows yeah. and things? Uh there were horses, wild boar. Uh they had a whole uh whole pen of deer, which was really weird cuz in northern California we have wild deer. I mean, yeah. you have deer on yeah, the East Coast, everywhere. right? Yeah,
0: all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> you have deer,
1: right? Hey, Hey now. Hey, now. To pita and to vegans everywhere, just so you know. I had uh, cucumber and tomato this morning (laughs) for breakfast. So anyways, so yeah, so they had animals everywhere. They had mini horses. And what I didn't know is that this ranch is open to the public. It's massive. I mean, acres and acres and acres. It's massive. So, And on a typical Saturday, they maybe have 3,000 kids that come to the ranch for the entire day. This place is what? huge. What do they do?
0: Just like pet the animals?
1: They hang out. Yeah, and they learn about nature. They So imagine a dude ranch that then is like in the basin of surrounding mountains. So everywhere you look, all you see is mountains and trees. And then you're just like in this valley uh, that was turned into it. So I guess the way it worked was uh, the, the lady that runs it now. Um, she, her father owned the land, and he was a huge fan of American Western movies. So he just—I'm oh, right. assuming he was very wealthy—and he built a dude ranch, uh, like a Western ranch. And it's weird; all the all the buildings are named after famous American cities, but they're kind of Greek. So it's like, <sighs> like you can see, it starts with New Orleans. And then after that, it's like five Greek letters. <laughs> so it's like, New Orlaskaskapis. You're like, what? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, Indianapolis. I'm like, what? <laughs> so anyways, really cool. And yeah, so on a typical day, I mean, they have thousands of, of people there, and it's a destination for Greek school children, I guess, uh-huh. to come there, learn about nature, pet the animals. But I mean, there's, there's full... Uh, soccer fields there there's basketball courts there's swimming everything you could ever think about uh, think of for camp and then what they had was they had three rooms where the teachers were so myself and Derek Roddy taught in one room Mm -hmm. then I had a second kit in another room with an amazing Greek drummer named George uh, I'm sorry Mike Kapalitis Uh, so him and I shared a room for different classes that I was doing then Chris Coleman and George Coyas, they shared a room in a different area that was probably, I don't know, three or four hundred yards away from our rooms. And so hmm. as the day went on, we all taught it was really cool. They had 45 students from sixteen or seventeen different countries. And on day one, there were fifteen red bracelets, fifteen blue bracelets, and fifteen black bracelets.
0: And it starts. <laughs> and it begins. <laughs> <laughs> Chill out.
1: So anyways, this Juno. commercial break is brought to you by... <laughs> Thank you, Tama. Your pedal is amazing. We're going to let you take...
0: <laughs> what is she freaking out about? I don't
1: know. Juno! Come here! Okay. Well, whatever. I'm just... <laughs> I can't even start. Okay. In three, two, one. So anyways... Uh... <laughs> Juno, come here. Come here. That's enough. Thank you. Get in here and lay down. I love you.
0: Lay down. Okay. Okay.
1: Bracelets. You're talking about bracelets. So the campers got to pick their own color of bracelets, which divided everybody up into three groups of 15. And it was really (laughs) cool. Like there were maybe 12 Italians there. They all picked the same group because not all of them spoke fluent English. Uh So they had built in translators in their own camp or in their own little group. And so, yeah, so I would teach each group every day uh, I teach the red group the blue group and then the black group and then uh, Chris would do the same George would do the same Derek would do the same and Mike would do the same so it was it was a lot of fun and I just I've never been so inspired to play the drums as I am right now I was kind of in a a little bit of a low point not like a depressed point but more of like a wandering. The desert, just looking mm. for like something to be inspired by, you know? <laughs> the epic um, dude ranch. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And then, and then I got it. Um so what kicked mean, you in the gear? Couple things. Uh seeing Chris Coleman teach. You know, I've known mm. Chris for a long time, but I've never seen him teach, and he's obviously just this perfect blend between stand-up comedian, motivational speaker, and great drum instructor Uh, seeing George Koyas teach who I'd never seen him even play before I just knew him as a metal drummer Mm -hmm. Uh, and watching him teach and seeing I guess what it was was as I was going from room to room and maybe you've experienced this at PASIC and stuff going from room to room no matter what they were teaching whether it was Chris teaching pop grooves from Beck or George teaching stuff from his band or Derek Roddy teaching his metal stuff the theme was always the same Mm -hmm. put in the work Mm -hmm. it never changed when when george broke down his hand routine his morning hand warm-up with his coffee and stuff it was like oh my god well of course you'd have fast hands if you Uh, did that uh, every uh, single day since you were 12 years old for one hour every morning and called it a warm-up chris coleman and i sat in on the class like actually on the pads and tried to do the warm-up with him and we, every time George would turn his face away from us, we'd stop playing and rub out our forearms. And then as soon, and then we'd get our singles back going as soon as he turned towards us again. Uh, yeah, was it, was, it was crazy. So there was a lot of inspiration. And they forced me to sit in. Every night we had a jam with an actual band. So the band stayed on the ranch. So they were there every night. And they played usually from about 9 p.m. until 4 a.m. What? I'm not kidding about that. So that's just their their job. It's just that was their job. Play. Yeah, and these were all like ringers from Greece. These were like legit studio session cats. So they got paid for the whole week to be there, Holy and smokes. it was nine p.m. to four a.m. and and usually the drumming didn't stop till five a.m. I have no idea how they even. Then when what time did the next day start? Ten. Uh, well, breakfast was at nine a.m. So nine p.m. to five a.m. was the jam, and then breakfast was at nine a.m. and. Oh, it smokes. I, I'm telling you, I was in bed by midnight every night, and at right around 4:30, I'd hear Chris Coleman yakking it up with some campers, and I'm going, <laughs> "How are you going to teach? You have to teach in four and a half
0: hours." He didn't. I mean, he was, wasn't even trying to get rid of that uh, jet lag. <laughs> no, just he's
1: like, I'm just I'm going to go through, through it. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was fantastic. I highly recommend everyone check it out. It's probably one of the most affordable camps going on right now in the world. Uh, if you want to check it out, just go to Lab music education.com <clears throat> lab music education.com, and you can check it out i think uh if you're if you sign up early you can have your own room on this ranch so you don't share it with anybody for a thousand euro so that's probably what about thirteen fifty dollars no clue <laughs> right on <laughs> i would say it's, it's about there so it's five days on the last day we went to a mediterranean beach and just hung out by the Aegean Sea, and then uh, had a big barbecue at the end of the night. So it's it's a lot of fun. So definitely check it out. And then, uh, yeah, uh, I, that was my first experience with Greece. So I had a lot of fun. I sat in on the jam. Uh, I will give a disclaimer. Mm. Because I would never heard of any of the songs that they, ha- that they were playing, the drummer, <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, but the drummer from the house band, who was one of the coolest cats ever, actually had to play the beat for me on the kit first. Nice. Be- yeah i was like dude i don't want to play he's like no you got this it's a really simple tune i'm like ah, it's fine i just it's just the endings i hate the freaking endings where we all look around and i go flat da ba da da nope <laughs> man we're still going <laughs> i hate that stuff so anyways so he was like okay just so you know it's kind of a syncopated vibe so he got up on the kit for and played like two bars of the groove i was like that's fine i got it and then uh yeah sat in and it was it was awesome i had a blast so really good stuff. So what was the songs? Were they like American pop songs or what was? I it? I guess so, but I'd never heard of any of them. The only one that I recognized through the whole night was "Love Rears Its Ugly Head" by Living Color, and well, I was like, "Oh come on!" That, I mean, I could. <laughs> that's like the one song I actually know note for note. <laughs> oh God, and that's not I a typical
0: like cover band gig. Although I've played it no. a bunch, that was tricky. There's, the whole thing with living the, color for me is the drums sound simple, but when you when you remove nope. the drums and listen to what's happening around it, it's weird. There's like odd times and everything,
1: you know. And it's I feel like it's it's one of those things where you don't realize how much of the song is built around the drums. So when you try to jam it, the song doesn't work. You yeah. have to know that drum part note exactly. for note.
0: Yeah, it's, it's um, pretty crazy. I think that's yeah, that's a case study. Like when I was learning well uh, that song in particular, there was nothing for me to like anchor my. Listening to it was like if you don't know it, you just don't know it because the guitar oh, part up. is kind of similar the whole time through, and the vocal mm-hmm. part is kind. And of you think different. Th- you think that two bar phrase,
1: boom, 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 don't, don't, don't. You think that's the song, and then you realize there's so there's thousands of parts that get you from every single section, and it's only drums, you know. And then there's all these little hits where somehow. The bass player memorized it, the guitar player memorized it, but you didn't memorize it. But it was led by you. It's it's tough. So if anybody wants to have some fun transcribing a song that seems simple, check out Love Rears Its Ugly Head. I believe that's off of what? Vivid by Living no, that's Color? that's off the second album, uh, Time's Up. Time's Up. Yeah. Uh, so check that out. That's the great Will Calhoun on drums. Good, good stuff. All right. So what's been going on with you, pal?
0: Gosh, I don't know. What has been going on? Because we haven't talked, you know, over a week. In real time. Yeah. It's just been a lot. I mean, it's been, I'll, I realized that when I get to the end of June, I'll have gone over a month without a single day off, without some kind of work commitment. Wow. So, you know, a couple days ago, I kind of hit the wall. Like, man, I'm like, I think I might get sick. But then today, whatever, I'm good. Let's just roll. <laughs> you know, I've got to learn a bunch of songs for this weekend. I've got a clinic okay. on Saturday and I've got a God, I've got to teach a a workshop on publicity on sunday so i'm doing a friday gig like an early night gig i'll be you know done by nine or something noon clinic on saturday another gig at six saturday night and then i gotta get up early and drive to wilmington to give a workshop at 10 a.m on sunday and then come home and all of this is four hours away like driving and I'm assuming and you don't weekend. have Monday off. <laughs> and that's my weekend. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So, you know, it's you know, nice work if you can get it, but sometimes I'm like, why did I agree to all of this stuff? At least I'll yeah, be able to buy I, a new stove if I want to or something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, man, I'm glad you got your priorities straight because at no point in my life have I ever thought when I got a little bit of money i could get a new stove that's what i need no just even breaks. if i needed one. <laughs> I, Oh my goodness yeah no i yeah. feel the same on the way home from greece it went uh 11 hours from athens to philly quick layover get through customs all that then five and a half hours to phoenix arizona two hour layover then an hour and a half or two hours to sacramento then a 45 minute ride from home to, or from the airport to home, and that's the moment where I go like, I don't know if I keep want to keep doing this, <laughs> and because on the way there, on the flight there, all I'm thinking is, I am going to Greece to play drum set. Oh, yeah. This is amazing. <laughs> and I'm only, I only have to play a couple hours a day and I get to teach. This is amazing. And then it's always, it's really anytime your flight gets delayed and you're about to miss your connecting flight, yeah. this isn't worth it. So we all go through. We all have our ups and downs. <laughs> Speaking of
0: ups and downs, let's talk about cymbal chokes. Ups and downs. So <laughs> <laughs> How was that segue? Cymbal chokes. So I don't do a lot of cymbal chokes. Um, actually, in fact, very rarely unless I need to. But... Uh, Yost Nicholas has me curious to check him out. So he wrote an article in the current issue, which is July. Uh, What's he call it? Creative symbol chokes, adding color to your fills. So he, instead of doing the symbol choke, I think how we all think of it as being like a tight accent where the whole band hits together. He's incorporating the choke within fills. So he's hitting the symbol with the left hand. And then choking it immediately afterwards with the same hand with the left
1: hand. Yeah, that's the the key key to the fill. Right, that's the key to Yost's chokes is that he's choking it with the same hand. And I think what happens. The other thing that you'll notice when you when we show you guys the audio example is he. A lot of times when we choke the cymbal, if you think about the theme to Rocky. all right. as soon as you hit the symbol you usually choke it with the opposite hand and it makes a very fast choke yeah. when you hit when you choke it with the same hand that you hit the symbol with generally it'll hang out a little bit longer and yost is timing his choke so it the symbol lasts for a, a, a specific duration and it gets cut off when he wants it to be cut off. It's not just hit it and grab it as fast as possible.
0: It looks like he cr- in the exercises, he marked it with an apostrophe. So it's like he hits the symbol and then within two sixteenth notes after that is when he chokes it.
1: Right. So the, the choke, the grab, if you will, the grab is, is in time and it's yep. thought of uh, like, it's a duration. And I, so he's thinking it or hearing it as He's turning a cymbal on, and then he's turning it off at some point in time. Mm-hmm. It's the same way that, that we open our hi-hats. We don't always go you know, 16th note open. That'd be very staccato. Sometimes we let it ring out for an entire 8th note or even more before we close our foot. And he does the same thing. But I think you have to almost hear it to understand what we're talking about. So let's play a little audio of it.
0: So I think with this, this was example three, if you're following along with the issue, by the way. Um, the point is there's a gap in there, the bass drum, and that's when he's you telling you that's when you grab the cymbal. So if you want to think of that little gap in the bass drum notes, that's when you clamp down with your, your left hand on the cymbal.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that I think is interesting, and I this is what separates Yoast's playing to me when it comes to this, is he's not the first person to choke the cymbal with the same hand, but I don't hear people use cymbal chokes without kick as much as I hear Yost do it. Mm-hmm. You know, normally you think I'm going to hit the kick, hit the cymbal at the same time, and then choke it with the other hand. He hits the cymbal all by itself, so there's no impact to it. It's almost like it just, it's, it's this swell
0: of. Zh- yeah, it's almost a swell. Yep. It's really and it's cool.
1: really, really cool. And then because of the duration that he lets it ring out, it, it just has a very neat sound to it. It was definitely one of the first things that caught my ear when I first saw him. Yost uh, is one of the people that had probably the biggest impact on me moving to Minel Cymbals because after spending time with Benny and playing his cymbals 10 years ago, then I went to Meinl's website and all the product demos were by Felix Lehrman and Yost Nickel. And I'd never heard of Yost, mm. I mean, especially a decade ago. And that was one of the things he was doing was these cymbal chokes and then choking it with the same hand he played it but there was no bass drum with it and it just
0: was like, whoa. That was such a cool sound. That reminds me of uh, have you seen Larnell Lewis do the similar thing with a hi hat where he'll like rub the stick on the hi hat and give it like this reverse yes. kind of effect? Yeah, yeah. Really yeah I mean cool. it has like a reverse reverb. Yeah, kind of yeah. Zh- so you like end yeah. that with a snare drum accent and it sounds like it's reverse. So there's a lot of cool techniques. I think that's similar to what Yus is getting that's like a it's a it's a lead in to the snare accent. And I think in all I, of these examples yeah pretty sure yeah all these examples he he follows the symbol with a snare drum accent so it's that like build into the accent kind of an effect so that's number three yeah. let's check out number five it gets a little bit more tricky So it sounds like he 's playing something similar, but different, but really, I think the only thing different between number five and number three is he 's hitting the floor tom in that gap where the bass drum between the bass drum notes right I mean and there's some th- other slight variations, but that 's kind of the concept
1: I think one of the things you could do instead of starting where this lesson is uh, and i 'm sure if Yost was teaching you privately, it would probably happen like this anyways. But I would just pick a loop of a few notes, treat that symbol just like it's a drum, and go around the kit. Go, you know, Pick maybe eight total notes, and that crash with your left hand and a choke with your left hand is one of those notes. Mm. And just loop that and loop that. One thing that I, I've noticed that happens with students, and this was reinforced when I just taught this camp, I would teach them something that was supposed to be a fill like this. And the way they practiced it without me telling them not to is they kept trying to play the fill that I taught them, meaning one bar of groove, one mm-hmm. bar of fill. one bar, And I, I was like, you keep failing on the fill. Why do you even waste your time with the bar of groove? Just
0: <laughs> make,
1: make a loop out of the thing that you're failing at and do that very slow. I'm sure if I got you down to 30 BPM, you could do this. So just build it up from there. Uh, and so that was something, and something like this, I would do the exact same thing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen me in my videos, but a lot of times I choke the symbol just by pushing the stick into the symbol mm-hmm, right. and the reason I do that is so that I can keep playing with the other hand and I didn't learn that by just jamming it. I literally went do do a million times in a row, mm-hmm. and then once I had. The fundamentals out of the way, the physical skill set out of the way, then I tried to apply it to my drumming. And I would do the same thing with this. And in all honesty, I probably will do the same thing with this because this is something that's very Yoast Nickel and it's something that I, I would love to introduce into my playing because... It's not quite as individualistic as the Johnny Rabb single stroke roll, yeah. Where you're like, man, yeah. if I do that even <laughs> once, someone's gonna yell out, Johnny Rab. And I'll be like, damn.
0: So which uh, which Tom Petty song do you think would be appropriate for me to do it this? <laughs>
1: oh, do you have a cover gig coming up? <laughs> yeah. <I'm sorry. laughs> man. Yeah, yeah. Running down a dream, you got it. Crush I'll do, it you wreck man.
0: me, I'll do it somewhere and you wreck me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, do you want to check out exercise number seven real quick? Yeah, so this is a seven-note grouping that goes over two measures.
1: So that is really, really Yoast. And what I mean by that is Yoast is, I think a lot of times we think that we got the modern odd groupings from maybe Benny Greb or some more modern guys. I'm telling you, a lot of it came from Udo Daman at Pop Academy, which then came also from Yoast Nickel. He had a huge influence on that. But the one thing that odd groupings are not new, musicians have been doing it forever. But Yoast is really, really known for playing them and teaching them in two bar phrases mm. so that's kind of his thing as he's going over the bar line a lot of us get scared when we do sevens and we round it off at the end dump 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 i'm out and we're done
0: <laughs> right you know like uh,
1: yeah. and a one and yost is really good at getting that one e and a two e and a three and a four e and, 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 and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one and yeah. that's what's happening here is once once you get over that bar line with groupings of seven, and then that the thing that you want to anchor onto is a cymbal hit with no bass drum, so there's no impact. Mm-hmm. The one of the seven is very shaky to the listener, and it's really
0: cool. It's pretty cool. I wonder if he studied Indian classical Indian music at all, because if I feel like this, like repeating the exact same thing three times is is heavily inspired by like tabla and. I wonder. I have to
1: ask him. I'm I'm sure that uh, that whole world of the modern pro guys with Pete Lockett and Steve Smith. I mean, it's at some point, I think really a lot of it started with Pete Magadini because he he came up with all this polyrhythm stuff once the Indian guys made their way to Berkeley back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And the late 60s is when that explosion was happening with Robbie Shankar playing with the Beatles and all of a sudden we're getting Indian influence and... Then we started thinking, okay, your society and your your civilization has been around a little bit longer than us. You <laughs> might be
0: more rhythmically advanced than us.
1: Yeah. It wouldn't be horrible for us to take some influence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that stuff, whenever I hear someone really ripping on Tabla or whatever, it's... Oh, it's a whole it's, different world. I mean, yeah, it's anyth- anything. It's Indian music, African music, Brazilian, I mean, yeah. Af- Cubans. It's like, what are we doing here? We're playing... Shook you all night long. <laughs> <laughs> and, and struggling.
1: Like, <laughs> struggling. <laughs> struggling with it. God, I just can't find the pocket. Okay, so I think the the big thing here with Yost's article, and especially if you listen to it, and you by the way, guys, if you want to check it out, you can find videos of him playing this stuff, and seeing him do it will help the visualization quite a bit, obviously. But the big thing is, Find new sounds on your kit and don't think just because the way it's always been done is the way it has to be done. I think finding that sound, like Mike mentioned earlier, the Larnell Lewis sim- or a stick slide down the hi-hats, a cymbal choke without bass drum, find something new, then incorporate it into your drumming and use common stuff like odd groupings to say, okay, I've got this new sound. Whatever it is, I mean, I, I think uh, when I think of sounds that aren't always taught, I think of the flam that you would play in a bossa nova when you hit the rack tom rim coming mm-hmm. down to a cross stick. Right? So, okay, that's my new sound. I've, I'm flaming a cross stick by hitting the rack tom rim on the I way down. Who did you
0: hear do that first?
1: Who did I hear do it yeah. first? God, me, I don't know. I mean, maybe Arto on a Modern Drummer festival.
0: And think of who it was for me i want to say it was like billy ward or somebody that's a good
1: one too on his big time video anything, yeah, or maybe. maybe even his modern drummer
0: video yeah maybe i can't i don't know i yeah. know it was not that long ago that i saw some i mean within 15 years ago yeah i you
1: no, i can tell you exactly where it was uh william patterson university graduate jane monite jazz vocalist had uh covered oh. waters of march by uh antonio carlos Shobim and the drummer was playing like a jazz bossa nova and he had this and i just and that that's one of the oldest youtube videos i have huh. and i just thought did that dude just flam a cross stick by hitting the <laughs> rack tom rim on the way down and then i took that into just all my swung grooves you know oh, um, interesting yeah yeah that's
0: a sound it's that a cool i don't thing. use often I don't play a lot it's of rim a clicks anymore, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> I just don't do it very much anymore. So anti-rim click.
1: <laughs> All right, everybody, check out Yost Nichols' <laughs> article. <laughs> it's called <laughs> <laughs> Creative <laughs> Creative Symbol Chokes. It is in the current issue of Modern
0: Drummer Magazine in the rock and jazz clinics section. All right, so our featured artist is hard to believe, never been on the cover before. Uh, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden. First first modern drummer cover in two thousand nineteen and he's been in the band since nineteen eighty three, I wanna say. Yep. Really? He's been in his first album with with uh Iron Maiden was Peace of Mind, nineteen eighty three. So good things come to those who wait.
1: Yeah, and I gotta say he's somebody that personally i i kind of missed this era of rock almost yeah, this was totally. when i was getting into rock this was actually the the taboo part of it. My, my parents yep. were like, no, no, no. You don't listen to Iron Maiden. You don't listen to Judas Priest. We'll let you go poison and a little Motley Crue. But it stops at Motley Crue. <laughs>
0: Which in the long run is probably so much
1: worse. <laughs> oh, totally. Well, well, we didn't have the internet yet. We didn't know what Tommy was going to do. But at, at the time, that's kind of where it stopped. So I didn't have a chance. <laughs> Keep it classy, Dawson. Uh, mm. I didn't have a chance to get into this. But it always blew me away every time I got to the UK, like how this guy was just always there. And because I remember seeing all the drum festivals that were happening and it seemed like he was headlining the drum festivals. And Mm -hmm. I was going like, who? The dude from Judas Priest? Like, is he that good? I've just never seen him play. Well, he's an Iron Maiden, by the way. (laughs) Right. Yes. But, it you know, it, it wasn't somebody. I don't know. It seemed like maybe it was somebody that was famous for being an Iron Maiden, which is different Uh than being famous for being a great drummer. Yeah. And I, so I just didn't know any, and he's still
0: doing it now. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I was just looking at a little bit of history because I, same thing. Like I, I think you and I are probably 10 years too young to have had this stuff really be, because I think of like the earliest experiences with music for me was when new wave took over. Well, new wave was, was a, the antithesis of British heavy metal. So I'd, it just sure. didn't it didn't fit in my aesthetic, even going back as far as being a five-year-old kid listening to, um, I mean, even Tom Petty. He had, a, what was that first video um, with the Alice in Chains theme? I mean, it was surreal. Well, what yeah. Alice, in Chains, Alice in Wonderland. What the hell was, was that song um, called? Um, is, was it on. You Don't Know How I Feel? No. You know it. Anyway. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I was an MTV kid, and everything was. You know what new matters way. is
1: that you have a Tom Petty cover gig coming up. You better figure this stuff out. I'm okay to not know it. <laughs> That's not on the
0: set list. Thank God. <laughs>
1: uh, I know what you're talking yeah. about, though. But
0: anyway, I mean, they're 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 massive. I was just looking at their their history, they've sold over a hundred million copies throughout their career. Um, I mean, they're they've been rated as the top metal band by a lot of different publications and stuff, and, and I think what what is starting to bring me back to them is when like I'm I'm a big fan of Bron Daler with Mastodon mm-hmm. sure. and there's something about his vibe in the metal genre that, that I find palatable not being a metalhead like there's something mm-hmm. about it a little bit more of a punk kind of a vibe or something and now I'm starting to see that a lot of that's coming from Iron Maiden like just the looseness and just rocking like Motorhead and Iron Maiden and some of that like just just going for it metal rather than super right. precise and using triggered everything, this and that. I mean they're they're pretty loose and they're just rocking. So I'm starting to I'm starting to finally dip back into it. And just the fact that they've been around that long is like you can't not have a lot of respect for yeah, it. Yeah.
1: And it does seem like right now, they're not out there doing the Alright, let's head over to Tokyo or to Singapore and just try to keep this thing going. Like when they play there's still enough
0: Iron Maiden fans yeah, everywhere. Oh yeah. <laughs> everywhere. No, absolutely. Like it's it's kinda crazy. And so, so we need some listeners who are who are Iron Maiden fans, like from back in the day to give us some input onto, you know, what is it about the band because I don't I think it's cool. I mean it for me it, it's the it's the over the top kind of like comic book stuff that I don't have a taste for. Like I just don't have a taste for that. i write I'm just yeah. more of a I grew up in, with punk so if it wasn't serious or or like silly skateboard stuff I wasn't right. getting into like fantasy world kind of music at the time oh, yeah but.
1: I I agree there's something about it that either you get it or you don't yeah but I can tell you right now my not getting it one hundred percent stems from not giving it a try mm-hmm. it's way different than certain aspects of jazz that it's like no 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 I did it I transcribed it I I played it I gigged it I tried everything I could it's not my thing this is more like I don't think it'll be my thing so I'm not even going to touch it and that's that's on me I I don't want to have a lot of that in my musical background I want to always give something a fair shake so I think this will be one of those things now talking about something that we both know a lot about who the hell would think (laughs) That he, talk about his ride Iron, symbol? <laughs> no, no. Okay, no. We'll get in. We'll get I, his. Okay, if you guys see his ride symbol, just know it's not his tech's fault. It does look like his ride symbol fell down and the tech didn't pull it back up. It's That's amazing. how he has it. But We're I'm not going to talk about to... that. Who would think by thinking about Iron Maiden and Nico McBrain, would you think he's playing a Sonar SQ2? <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean, uh, well, he's a recent. Wow, he's a recent shift over from Premiere. Which I even think, more
1: crazy. Yeah. What? Like, <laughs> I if you just said better weeks pay, Nico McBrain. What does he play? I'd be like Tama. So there's not even a question. But he plays Tama. Of course yeah, he plays Tama. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know. And then symbols. I would have said honestly, maybe Minel or Sabian. Like, but the Peisty thing actually makes sense, especially yeah. when you see that he's got. When you can get Peisty to make their logo into an Iron Maiden font. <laughs> you're rolling deep bro could you imagine how that conversation would go with me and eric peisty you know what uh i i think the product's great i just want to switch it to kind of like more of a mike's lessons vibe that's the avenir font it'd have been like yeah why don't you go sign with Michael? all right <laughs> uh, you want to check out some audio
0: no all right so we've got uh... <laughs> yes i do of course this is, uh, like you said, Nico's been showing up at drum events for for decades. So this goes back 2008. He was a featured performer at the Guitar Center 20th Annual Drum Off. So this is just him. It sounds like he's jamming to like a board mix of the band, Minus Drums. <laughs> so let's check out a bit of it. Good lord, that's the yes.
1: <laughs> Okay, so I can tell you right off the bat, just from watching that little clip and hearing that little clip, why I could see how many drummers, why I can see why drummers love him. And that's the fact that it's fully tangible. Yeah, he is fun. flawless at doing that. Yeah. But you watch that and think, I think I could do that. Yeah. You don't realize how, one, you would need a lot of work to be able to do it as clean as he's doing it. But you kind of feel like I think I could do that,
0: mm-hmm. you know. It um, sounds and so, to me like it's like um, more kind of rough and, and tumble rush, you know, like yeah, not as precise a, and clean. It's just it's more of like just go for it, play a lot of stuff, just have fun,
1: right? But it it also like I said, I just think if you had a gr- a great set of fundamental skills. You would feel like, okay, give me two days and I can learn a, a hmm. maiden tune, which is awesome. But now also hearing it, there's no way that dude could be any other cymbal artist than a peisty artist. Like that crystal clear <laughs> yeah. ride
0: sound. Yeah. That ride sound. I don't think the I one mean, in that clip is the one that's in the cover story, but that's his signature sound. It's, it's a yeah. What he's using now is a 22-inch signature reflector bell power slave signature model ride. And it's signature. just like, sounds like metal ride simple to me. Yeah, I, I like, totally agree. Yeah,
1: there's there's no way that the last time he was in the studio, they didn't say, hey, can you just hit the ride once? We're just going <laughs> to, just want to hear it. It's like, you know, you're, you know, you're sampling that. So uh, very cool stuff. Well, guys, if you, you want to learn wrong. more about Nico McBrain, you can check out the current issue of Modern Drummer. He is on the cover of it. And there's... Probably about six hundred and eighty million videos of him on YouTube if you've never seen him play. So <laughs> check it out.
0: Probably. All right, what are we at? What second segment are we at here? Don't you need to do an ad? Oh, right. I'm okay. not part of that stuff. I stay out of it. Speaking of Tama, we have to thank Tama for sponsoring this episode. And um, if you haven't seen it yet, they released a new pedal called the Dyna Sync. This is a direct drive pedal, which means there's no chain or strap. It's all metal linkage that connects the footboard straight to the cam, so there's like zero flex or give to it. Uh, It's a really cool pedal. They sent me the single and double to review, um, and I took the single home to just give it a initial testing. Um, And it's it's a hundred percent transparent pedal. You just it just does what it needs to do. I didn't have any. I didn't even think about it, which is cool. Um, but the cool features that they added, you can adjust the footboard angle very easily. You can adjust the um, you know the, the beater angle independently. And there's all kinds of little little tweaks that Tama is known for. They've got oily bearings which reduces friction at the heel plate. Um, you know the bass drum clamp is really well designed. So it's not going to slip off. The chains are easy to just pop on and off. So when you pack the pedal up, just like they—they didn't—they didn't overlook any detail. But it's a very slick, simple, um, fast, but not super lightweight feeling pedal. Um, so check it out. Well, Dino and the, there's
1: a lot of things also that I haven't really seen that much of. The being able to adjust the footboard angle so easily, awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slideable cam that's really cool i should have mentioned that because i did did mess
0: with that i didn't even expect that to have as much of an impact as it does but it really adjusts the the weight of the beater i felt like the further further away it is the, the heavier the beater felt
1: and i would say for somebody like me that's become very accustomed to a specific pedal the one thing that i think especially if you're already an Iron Cobra player that you might have been waiting for, is if you don't like having such a – I don't even know how to say it – a a textured pedal board, Mm -hmm. this has a very smooth pedal board. So if you're an Iron Cobra player and you love the action and all that, but maybe you play in socks, this is your jam because it's a very smooth pedal board. The only thing I can see is that there's a little bit of indentation where it says Dynasync
0: yeah and it's right in the middle it shouldn't it shouldn't cause any issues so yeah it looks yeah. it's a great pedal initial testing we'll, we'll come back to it for a full review but definitely check out Dyna-Sync so D I N A hyphen S Y N C by Tama especially if you're into the classic direct drive style boom dig it all right so let's um let's check out this funky snare drum so Calderwood Percussion is a company in um, Boston that I ran across them at PASIC maybe last year. They had a whole drum set made up of rope tune, like colonial style looking drums. Uh, And it just, I mean, it was like, okay, that's weird. No one's ever done that before. Let me, let me hear this thing. Um, So we got to talk and then I realized that they, they actually build, they're kind of well known for making like traditional rudimental style, like rope drums, like marching drums. It is a very weird
1: thing to see a traditional rope tension
0: drum with,
1: you know, the felt strip and everything and then a modern throw off. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's I was like, is that a
0: trick throw off? That's the difference between Calderwood and some of the other, uh, you know, colonial snare drum companies. They, they can do the complete traditional historic style, but they actually focus more on modernizing it. So it's just a easier drum to work with. Um, so that's the rope side but then they also just they just make great drums uh, the the owner of the company used to work at harmonix which was the creators of rock band oh wow and, okay. and he's not a he's not a drummer per se i mean he he can play drums and he teaches drum lines and things like that but he's actually a, a trombone and a bassist but he was doing sound design for harmonix And so they were building their own instruments. That's what they did. They needed some weird sounding drums or whatever. So they would just build it and sample it. So he just became a drum builder by default. Uh, So the drum we have for review, I think what we'll do is we'll actually drop in some audio of the rope kit as well. But the drum that we're actually reviewing in this issue is a more quote unquote normal. It's a piccolo snare. So three, three and three quarters by 12 inch seven ply maple drum. Um, it's But it's funky looking. So he got some fabric, some brocade Asian-style fabric, and that's the finish on the drum.
1: Yeah, the finish is out of control. I mean, you've got these anodized hoops and lugs that are almost maybe like a violet or purple. Yep. And then the fabric just, I don't even know how to say it other than it's, I don't know, it's just happy asian koi fish dancing yeah. around on your snare drum <laughs>
0: right.
1: right and then but the sound and you'll hear it when we play it the sound is is pretty versatile this is almost like a step up from that piccolo that we all had back in the day the little cheapy pearl jobby mm-hmm. um and but i was really surprised how versatile this thing was when you took it through the tuning ranges and
0: it's only 275 dollars so can't beat that for a handmade drum so let's check it out this is so I'm going from very high down to very low on this little guy So that piccolo came with uh, a two ply Evans HD dry head uh, which is a pre muffled head um, I think that contributed to some of it's nice tight kind of dry sound um, Yeah. other than that it just it just played well the snare wires held in place Nothing's nothing slipped out of tuning it just it played like a really nice professional drum um, so if you're in a market for a piccolo you want something kind of funky looking they can do crazy stuff or they can just do normal stuff um, but go to calderwoodpercussion.com to check out all the stuff they got going on now real quick
1: on the lower tunings you had a couple of rolls that i was obviously i had the benefit of watching the video not just hearing but your everything looked like you still had a ton of rebound is that just because it's a 12 instead of a 14
0: yeah it didn't yeah it didn't really flap out maybe maybe the head contributes has a little bit more tension okay. into it naturally i mean
1: you were playing things that you would have normally played it more of a medium tension. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just backbeats; like you still had a bunch of ghost notes. You were doing some five stroke rolls, and it was like, wow, that's not normally what you would play when you go gushy on it on a snare. So, uh, I mean, between maybe the head, the drum just being a great drum, and a seven ply shell, um, seemed yeah. like it still had a lot of a lot of rebound and response, even at the lower tunings.
0: Yeah, for sure, it's definitely a funky drum. So let's check out that rope tension kit now. So this is four-piece kit um i don't remember the exact sizes but it was a 12 and 14 inch toms 20 inch bass drum i believe and then deep right deep snare drum i think it was 8 by 14 or something like that it was and they all have rope tension systems wood hoops um so i play it in two tunings kind of high jazzy and then low kind of sloppy pretty wild i mean they sound like drums but to me they, they have something that i can't get out of any other drum like yeah some, for sure
1: they're definitely their own thing uh so help me out with the rope tension part of it how do you change the tension is it the things those black pieces that yes, are on the drum so okay. the way on the it works
0: is there's you know the, the rope goes in a v from top to bottom all the way around the drum and then at each v there's they call them ears it's like a leather leather strapped is kind of you can slide it up and down so if you slide it towards the resonant head it squeezes the rope together and makes it tighter so to loosen it you just pull the the ears closer to you so you can change the entire tuning in like 10 seconds
1: seconds yeah and you would visually be able to see if the tension was equal
0: yeah right like i you know halfway up the rope is where i like it for this sound or you can bring it all the way down i did find that the smaller the drum. The, the harder it was to get a lot of tension on the head okay i'm sure just physics with having just not enough space and there's already sure. tension in the ropes initially but the bass drum you could go from like sloppy to bebop um the floor was cool. the same thing i could get the floor tom actually higher than the rack tom really yeah so wow th- so th- but either way i felt like there was just something funky there like Boxy in all the good ways, <laughs> you know, like a punchy. Yeah, boxiness. no, I, t- I totally
1: agree. I think it's got like almost that built-in Mumford and Sons
0: vibe. Yeah, I think like Jay Belarose or, or someone would just love this kind of thing. Man, so we have to, we have to do a feature on Jay. Yeah, yeah, we that will. dude
1: just keeps showing up on all of my favorite <laughs> records. So, <laughs> and he's the most secretive cat ever. Look, finding anything <laughs> out about him.
0: all right well if you want to check out more about calderwood percussion i advise you to go to their website check out what's on display in their shop so that's c-a-l-d-e-r-w-o-o-d and then percussion.com calderwood percussion Uh, there's all kinds of cool stuff this rope tension kit isn't like a stock item they just build it for for show and for fun but i'm sure if you wanted to order one they could make you one it's pretty pretty cool so check them out calderwood percussion boom all right, where are we at now? I think it's... Uh, oh, listener questions. questions. So we have three audio questions to get through. Boom. Let's start with Jay Cookson.
2: I'm Mike and Mike. Jay from the UK here. Thanks once again for the podcast. Fridays aren't Fridays without a new episode, so please keep it up. Anyway, to my question, which is about drum sizes. I'm thinking about spending quite a lot of money on my dream kit. However, I find it difficult to identify what sizes to get i'll give you an example i tried a timer star walnut kit the other day and this had a 16 by 22 bass drum i was left thinking well what would the 14 by 22 sound like or what would the 16 by 20 sound like of course the shop can't keep all the sizes and therefore i'm finding it difficult to confidently order the right sizes for me obviously as i've said i'm planning on spending quite a lot of money So I want it to be right. I'm not somebody with a set configuration. So I just want what sounds best to my ear. This is the case for all the drums, including the doms and snare drum. So I'd really value your thoughts. Thanks again.
1: That's a great question, Jane. I think we've all been in that position, especially when you're ordering your first kit. When you go Mm -hmm. to a store and they have... You know, maybe if you're in that $500 to $700 range, you're probably going to buy what's in store. Once you get into that $3,000 range, you know, a 3,000 euro range, you start thinking, hell, if I'm spending that much, I want it in emerald green, not forest green. <laughs> right. And then the sizes come into play. And I think the one thing you have to understand, Jay, is that since we don't know what you want out of this kit, we can't tell you the exact sizes that you should get. What we can tell you is that... You should get what will be the most versatile for you, so that you can have a lot of wiggle room there. I don't find a lot of versatility in a twenty-two by twenty bass drum. No, but uh, a you know twenty twenty-two by fourteen, or uh, as Mike would say, a fourteen by twenty-two. I think there's a lot of versatility there because you've got that batter head so close to the rezzo head that you could go full wide open bottom and have an amazing huge bass drum that almost sounds like a 24 or you could throw two pillows inside of it and just have it as punchy as a 20 inch kick. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of flexibility in something like that. Same with a 12 by 8 rack tom or 8 by 12. I feel like there's a lot of flexibility in that. Uh, floor tom is to me where it gets a little hairy because some people just love
0: 14s and some people need that extra fatness of a 16 what do you think buddy yeah i think floor tom is is the one spot where you have to figure out what kind of music you're going to be playing if it's if it's tending towards quieter acoustic jazz or whatever than a 14 if it's rock and loud and you're going to have microphones on it then definitely a 16 agreed the rest i mean a 12 or a 13 you can i can do with with either um a 10, I only use if I'm playing something that just screams for 90s fusion or something like that. Right. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's 12-14 or thirteen, sixteen for the toms. And depth-wise, I am not picky. I just let the company tell me, the manufacturer tell me what they Honestly, I,
1: I think you know with depth the the 8 by 12 I like just because especially if I have a 22 inch kick it's giving me a lot of flexibility to have my toms a little more flat which I tend to enjoy mm-hmm. but I think the floor tom comes down to do you want to mount it or do you like having it on legs yeah uh, when you go say 12 by 14, and you have it on legs. Sometimes you can't get it tall enough because of how short the legs are. Yeah. So I, I enjoy a 14 by 14. I enjoy a 16 by 16 on legs, mainly because I used to play with my floor tom as a mounted tom. And it's just different. It's mm-hmm. just not as sturdy when it has one point of mounting rather than three. Yep,
0: for sure. And, you know, I have, a, I have one that's a 15 by 16. I don't notice that it's an inch shorter than standard. Right. Uh, so yeah, right. I kind of trust the builder for that. As far as bass drums, I think that's really where your head can explode. Um, mm-hmm. But I can say fairly certainly that majority of the music that we listen to that's been recorded is with a f- standard depth bass drum, so 14 inch deep or 16 inch deep, uh, 20 or 22. Yeah. So I think, and if I was going to get one. I would probably get a 16 by 20 if I knew I was going to be playing mostly, again, tending towards quieter, acoustic-style musics. And if I was going to get something bigger, I would do a 14 or a 15 by 22
1: Yeah, I, I think out of... I have, in my Cream Oyster Brooklyns, I have almost every size of bass drum they make. And I would say the, the 14 by 22 is probably the most versatile bass drum I have. Mm-hmm. I can... Like I said, wide open with no muffling whatsoever, and it'll shake this room, yeah, and right. then I put two pillows inside it, and it goes, kick!
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, so I would say that's probably the most versatile that, uh, that I own. So
0: I hope that helps. Let's go to um, Nick Murray. Hey, Mike and Mike. This is
1: Nick from Poughkeepsie. Uh, I just had a question about soloing in a jazz context. Um, I often play these jazz jams where I'm the house drummer, and... Either I'll get an entire form to myself, like 32 measures of a solo, or there'll be training fours with the other musicians. Um, I just wanted to know what your approaches are to both of these different types of solos. Like, is there a method that you have when you're training fours? Do you try to copy the other musicians? or And when you have a solo to yourself, do you try to develop an idea in just 32 bars? Like, Just wondering what you guys
0: think. All right, thank you. That's a great question. We could probably do a whole hour episode on how to solo. <laughs> you know? Agreed. I mean, that going from
1: that world of trading fours, which is to me, much more conversational than yeah. to taking a solo still in a musical context, than to open solo yeah. where th- th- those are three totally different skill sets. And I feel that there's one common thread to all of that, which is practicing your improvisational skill set. Mm. Can you improvise in the moment? Uh, But in a four-bar solo, I'm not going to really tell a massive story. I'm just going to kind of keep things going. Now, since you probably have done much more recent jazz stuff where you're trading fours with somebody, are you taking their last four-bar phrase into consideration
0: when you start your four-bar phrase? Uh, I would say not very often. I mean – and other than are they playing loud and fast or are they playing quiet and and, okay. and slow. You know? Sure. And then I would decide do I want to contrast it or do I want to compliment it. But I kind of caution against what what's kind of known as Mickey Mousing where it's you play a rhythm and I'm going to play it back and you play a rhythm and right. I play it. I think if you do yeah. that it should be limited to when you want to make someone laugh. <laughs> That's kind of its function. Like oh, I can play that right back to you. It'll be funny. Did you
1: ever see? I think it was like uh, the Bass Day uh, jam with uh, Victor Wooten and then Steve Smith on drums, uh-huh. and they're literally call and responding for for a while. And it is—it's cute. It's yeah. not—it's uh, not deep. It's not—it's kind of impressive, but it's more than anything. It's kind of cute and kind of cheeky. Here's one thing uh, with that: when when do you feel comfortable? Going slightly into the fifth bar. I hear this a lot, where like maybe a sax player is trading fours, and they don't finish on the one of the fifth bar. They kind of, yeah, they just th- fade their way into it. Is that? Think, do you have to really trust that the person knows how to keep track of four-bar phrases yes. to do that?
0: That's not something that I would ever do if I'm playing with people that I don't really know they're playing inside now. Right. That's something like if you're a band and you've been playing for gigs for a year, you've been trading fours on this tune for a year, and everyone knows what everyone's going to do, and you're like, hey, let right. me let me just extend this three-beat pattern into the next bar right then do yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> but i wouldn't be like totally sitting at a jam session and i'm going to be the hippest guy in the room and start playing to the end of two after every form that kind of stuff yeah
1: because i mean there are people that use they kind of are relying on you a little too much and they're waiting for your crash to be like well now i'll start my four uh, and it's like well i, I don't want to crash on the one like <laughs> You should have been, you should know where you are. We're feeling this in four of our phrases. Okay. So we leave that behind, and that's just kind of its own thing. You're picking up your cues based off of the intensity of the soloist, if anything else. Yeah. And Um, I think
0: the biggest piece of of advice would be always go back to the melody. Like always be singing or referencing the melody throughout the entire time that everyone is trading. If you can't hear, how what they're playing is building off of the melody because it should be in some way if they're playing a, right. a guitar piano or a horn their their vocabulary is limited to the chords and the scales that relate to that melody so i always hum the melody in my head while i'm playing through a tune so then i always have that to fall back on like i don't know what to do well let me just hint at the shape of the melody for these four bars and right or if i know the bridge is is a totally different vibe and when i get to that part in my trade i can go a totally different direction with it so it's always referencing the form and the melody and the structure of the tune it's never just like you play four bars i play four bars we just keep doing this until we get where we run out of ideas it's always yes you're playing the a section i'm playing the b section
1: when i was younger soloing in a jazz context especially trading fours trading eights was a little bit m- mysterious to me as far as I just thought, well, I got eight bars to show what I have on the instrument until Pete Magadini started making me actually sing the melody out loud while I soloed and mm-hmm. that changed everything about what I played and it took the stress off of me exactly. because yeah. it was all outlined for me. I just had to play it on the drum set and all the n- all the everything I had fit around this melody and it became so much more listenable.
0: Yep. than just I'm going to blow chops for eight bars. Yeah, if um, you're thinking like I'm going to play my triplet lick for the next four, then you're <laughs> probably taking the wrong path.
3: <laughs> yeah, you're, not, you're not
1: really telling much of a story. Uh, so, okay. Uh, and then the last thing would be, let's say he's got a longer solo. He's taking 16 or 32. In that case, I think that's where storytelling really comes into play. Hold back. You have plenty of time. It'll feel like, oh, I'm on display. I got to go. You're not. You have a very long time to develop this thing. You space is your friend. Silence yeah. is your friend.
0: Yeah, I always tell um, students and drummers and in, in workshops that you have to take a breath, even though you don't really have to take a breath to play the drums. You have to take a musical pause. So think of yeah. you know how long could if you were playing a trumpet, how long could you sustain a wind an airflow, and and before you just stop, it's probably going right. to be. Four, five, six measures, and then you just have to take a breath. So if you think the right. same way, like, okay, here's my statement. Let me just take a quick breath before I then repeat it or do something yeah. different. So it's not this constant flow of like double stroke roll accent pattern right. stuff just take a little yeah. pause just give a little break
1: <laughs> yeah we, we can all tell when your teacher ran you through uh syncopation and said play a double stroke roll and then accent the written part yeah exactly. we all know that if you go we all know what's going on okay so let me just ask you one last question before we uh move on from this mm-hmm. since i don't have as much of a handle on jazz history as you do especially modern jazz where did the or who would be known most for taking a phrase and then just shifting that as far as where they start? So even if it's just you know deck of the doom deck of the doom deck of the doom deka
0: Yeah, I mean it's got to be Max. Okay, he's yeah. he was the architect. I mean, I think of him as being the uh, the architect of drum soling. He was just always. Okay. I mean, his if you if you really transcribe his stuff down to just what's the fragments, he only mm-hmm. had a, you know, a, f- a couple dozen. Ideas. He just knew how to like restructure them and and add to them and build on them and put them in different places and reverse them. He was really into the architecture of composition. So he would be for sure.
1: It almost seems very similar to the way that Jojo Mayer explained his drum and bass style of drumming in the Modern Drummer Festival DVD, where he Mm -hmm. said, you know, I'm just kind of, I've got this sentence that's one bar long and I just keep stuttering different parts of the sentence. Yeah, repeating different bits of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. So, all right, hope that helps, Nick.
0: All right, our last one is also jazz related. This is Ryan Halsey.
3: Hi, Mike and Mike. Hope you're both well. This is Ryan Halsey here from the UK. And I've got a question regarding sort of jazz playing in general, really. So I've been working on some independence phrases between the bass and the snare, you know, for example, boom, something like that. And I'm just wondering when it comes to actually playing jazz time and I'm feathering the bass drum, at what point do you consider it a good point to stop the feathering, to prepare yourself for that accented phrase on the bass drum? And then also, how do you get back into the feathering again? Do you immediately hit the feathering on the downbeat of the next bar, or do you just kind of bring it back in again when it feels appropriate to do so? Any feedback would be... Appreciated because there seems to be loads of resources on lots of rhythms you can play, but not much mention on how you actually tie that feathering and those phrases together to make it sound more seamless. So any help would be hugely appreciated. Thanks very much.
1: What a great question, because that is one of those things, just like he said, you're not going to find that in a lot of books. Mm-hmm if the drummer is feathering, you're not going to hear it on a lot of records because you don't know when they're feathering and when they're not. You yep.
0: almost have to be going to jazz shows where yep. you can see the drummer's foot. Yeah, exactly. And I think my answer is a cop-out. If if you're thinking about it, then you're, you're thinking too much about it. <laughs> you know? no. It's just stop when you need to stop and then don't feel like you have to come back in right away. Give yourself a couple beats after the end of the phrase or something like that. It really, for me, it's just... I think maybe... It's the following bar. So if I get to a, a part yeah. where I'm having to use the, the bass drum in the figure, it might be by the downbeat of the next bar where I'm kind of settled back in. But I don't, I have never once thought about it. Um,
1: yeah. I would say, if anything, for me, it would be probably start up on the next hi hat. So on the two, because I probably came out of the phrase on the of uh for some upbeat mm-hmm. somewhere to give it forward momentum that I'm not going to nail the one. So I probably wouldn't start the feathering until my other foot starts again on the two. Um, yeah. But I mean, just like you said, it's never... The reason why I think that's such a great question is I've never thought of it myself. Um, yeah. And obviously, my jazz background is much different. It's more saving a jazz drummer's hide when they can't make it to a gig and there's 13 minutes till downbeat... <laughs> and they're like, okay, it happens to be in Folsom. The closest drummer's mic will call him. He can do it. At least, At least the gig will still go on. But even in that case, I'm never thinking, am I feathering or am I not? And the other thing is feathering has a specific role it's you don't do it because the jazz drummers of late did it you do it to fill up the low end of the room so you can feel when you should be feathering and you can feel when it's unnecessary
0: and i think Um, in most modern situations where if the bass player has an amp and maybe the piano has a mic on it and the horn players with playing with a mic on it you really don't even need to do any of that i think it's just for me it's helpful just to keep you grounded keep the time kind of centered And also to keep you from playing too much if you're always having to keep time with your feet. But I think by the time we got into, like, 1965, Tony Williams, he wasn't really feathering a ton. So, you know, I wouldn't feel super pressured to do it unless you feel like your beat just needs to be centered a little bit. Yeah. I'm with you. Cool. All right. So it's time to... Oh, we need more listener questions. We have plenty of emailed ones, but I like the audio stuff too. So if you don't mind recording yourself, send it over to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. Now it's time for Pick of the Week. So mine is directly related to that 15 minutes of jazz nerdery that we just had, so (laughs) (laughs) we should start with mine. (laughs) Bring it! I am a huge fan of Lewis Nash, but I've kind of stopped paying attention for whatever reason, and I overlooked a great record that he did. It's a duo record with the saxophonist Steve Wilson. So if you go to iTunes or Spotify or whatever, just look for Lewis Nash Steve Wilson, you're going to find this record. But in particular, there's a track on there that's just drums, so Um, Lewis is playing his version of Freedom Jazz Dance which is a a pretty classic standard modern jazz tune Uh, so what I want to do is play the not the original but play the Miles Davis version with Tony Williams you can kind of hear the melody and the shape of it it's real kind of disjointed and and vertical sounding and then we're going to listen to Lewis interpret that melody on the drums so first up is the Miles Davis version we that's the miles davis version which if you listen to the the Miles smiles album it's funny that clearly miles and wayne shorter started at the wrong spot but (laughs) they kept it on the on the track i think it's amazing but so when they actually settle in and play the unison that's the melody so now let's listen to lewis nash do his version of it the album is called Duolog. yeah so if anyone has any questions on how to play melodically on the drums um, listen to everything lewis nash has ever done he's brilliant his technique is super clean and precise his sense of melody is uncanny um, his language is 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 amazing so lewis nash steve wilson record log, the whole record is great but that was freedom jazz dance
1: absolutely awesome all right my pick of the week is a little bit different it's a tip of the week so this is for all of you out there that are trying to be a little bit more productive with your practice time are you familiar mr dawson with uh the term habit anchors nope i know what habits are (laughs) okay so so let's figure this out let's let's say that you want to drink one cup of green tea every day okay That's the habit you want to bring into your life because, you know, it's got tons of antioxidants. You want to bring that habit into your life. Uh, And we can't say it'll take you 15 days to build a habit. It's so individualistic that it doesn't work like that. Okay. It could take somebody five days to build a habit. It could take somebody 90 days to build a habit. So what you want to do is find something else in your life that is a habit that you formed a long time ago. So can you think of anything in your life that happens every day already? Could be um, brushing your teeth, anything that's just like, God, well, I don't yeah, even I mean, think about gosh, it. I should do the it.
0: First thing I do, uh, my morning ritual is is kind of ridiculous. I have a glass of water with lemon and uh, vinegar in it every day. First thing, the okay. moment I wake up, that's every single day. Okay, perfect.
1: So that would be an easy habit anchor, which would be you just replace that with green tea. Mm. If you don't want to do that, maybe because you're going to do that, you find a habit that's more of a midday habit. And you put the tea bag right next to that thing that you do every day. So you find a habit that's already formed. I know you take your dog for a walk a lot.
0: Yeah, right. So maybe
1: there's a a tea mug and a bag of green tea sitting right next to your dog's leash. So every time you bring your dog Uh, back inside, hang up the leash, there's your tea. So for drummers, and I'm bringing this up because I am very inspired to practice right now. But my life gets so busy sometimes that I really don't. I don't make the time to practice, but practice needs to become part of my day. Mm-hmm. Meaning that I need to start sacrificing something else because practice can't be the thing that gets sacrificed. Mm-hmm. So, what I started today was uh, just a uh, an anchor habit, which is every single day I take a shower. Mm-hmm. So last night I put my practice pad and sticks right next to the shower, and really. When I got out of the shower this morning, I toweled off, put on a T-shirt and some boxers. Well, let's be honest. Briefs. Uh, <laughs> and I just walked let's my back let dra- I didn't put anything on. <laughs> let's be honest. It's the way that I do Skype. You know, he <laughs> only sees from the waist up. What does it matter? So anyways, so I got out of the shower, toweled off, put on my T-shirt, uh, and then went on down. Uh, and my, my pad and sticks were right there. So I didn't have to remind my – it was like, okay – I went I, I did all the trouble of putting my pad and my sticks next to the shower. Mm-hmm. You're a loser if you walk past it. Grab them right. and I literally did forty-five minutes of pataflaflaws, uh, two bars of pataflaflaws into two bars of flammadiddles because that is something that I really struggle with at higher tempos is anytime there's two flams back to back, uh flam-a-diddles themselves obviously just have the downbeat, then going straight into two bars of, of pataflaflaws. I really struggle with those alternating flams at higher tempos. So 45 minutes, I worked my way up from 70 BPM to 95 BPM, and I did not care about speed. I don't need an award for a BPM. I need clarity, and I was obsessed with clarity, and I logged the time on Mike'sLessons.com. I got rewarded. It was like, good job, Mike. You practiced. And I was like, what? Fantastic. And it was just one of those things. So I'm encouraging all of you guys to find a habit anchor. If you're trying to make a new habit, find something you already have in your life, and then put that, attach that, because it's going to happen every day. Like I said, brushing your teeth. If you Mm -hmm. wanted to take vitamins, put your vitamins by your toothbrush. Yeah, right. How could you forget to take your vitamins? You're going to brush your teeth at least twice a day, hopefully. (laughs) Come on, guys. Come on, guys. So anyways. I
0: have a a stick control uh, application that you just reminded me of, and I wanted to share, if that's cool. Bring it. Okay. So I don't know if anyone taught me this, or if I just stumbled on it, or if I'm plagiarizing. But... (laughs) every time there's single strokes you play them okay. as flams and then every time there's okay. a double you just a double or a triple or a four you just act you just flam the first of those notes so mm. example one would just be alternating flams but once you get into the double strokes it's flam taps and then yeah. there's other so, variations like half kind of like windmill kind of things that start happening yeah i've never done great. that before but that I started messing with it the other day. I'm like, I got to remember this. I got to share it. So that's my gift to you all. If you want to get frustrated with your alternating flams, play stick control that way.
1: <laughs> that's great. And it, you know, I I think that's there's a part of that that I did, which for me, I immediately, even as a young drummer, realized flam taps can be recategorized or, or reframed as flam twos, which then allows for flam threes, flam fours, flam mm-hmm. fives. So I was always doing blitta to blitta to blitta blah ta blitta ta but The closest my flams ever got together was flam taps. So it never became blah, 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 blah. That never happened. And that's why I chose the pad of flower. I was like, you know what? I can do this. I know exactly what it is. I can teach it all day long, but it doesn't ever make its way. There's never a time that alternating flams make it into my actual drumming as part of my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do this, but I could have so easily found something else to occupy that time if that practice pad and sticks weren't sitting right by the shower. Because then all of a sudden, even my wife's going like, hey, why the hell is there a freaking practice pad right next to the shower? And so that (laughs) all of a sudden means I have to do this. Otherwise, she's going to say, so why was it there? I'm like, ah, I thought I'd practice, but I just didn't. So anyways, practice uh, or habit anchors, hopefully that will help you guys. Check out the album Mike recommended.
0: Dude, we went a little long today. We did. We had some some catching up to do. (laughs) So. our outro beat is Kyle Denny and he's using one of the tracks from Jim Riley's book that we've recommended many times Survival Guide for the Modern Drummer so mm-hmm. uh, as long as we give Jim the proper plug hopefully he won't tell us to take this down but this is Kyle jamming over one of Jim Riley's tracks uh, don't so we, sue us Jim <laughs> please send your beats to mdinfo at modern dot com download links so the attachment doesn't get lost in transmit um, yeah that's it so we win. We want hour and 15 in. Get the hell out of here. (laughs) Sweet chicken gumbo. Later, guys.